Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Today's show, unfortunately, is not going to be a lot of fun because life is not a lot of fun today. We will be doing fun things later on in the week. In fact, before we plunge into today's show, this way I won't forget, I want to tell you that on Wednesday night at 730, and you'll need this. You'll need this by Wednesday, the way things are going. We're going to be doing a show about music and spirituality. We're going to have people who create music and are informed by a variety of different spiritual traditions. They're all going to be together with us at the Copper Beach Institute, which is sort of on the grounds of the Holy Family Monastery in West Hartford. And you should join us. I believe it's absolutely free, and we'd be happy to have you there. And there's more information about that on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. All right, later in the show today, we're going to talk about the problems in Houston and why they're so bad. And, and what we're going to tell you about is all the ways in which development officials and elected officials in Houston have been warned about what was going to happen when the so-called perfect storm came. And the perfect storm is here right now. And all of the things that had been suggested, the really terrible scenarios that had been painted, uh, in fact, have come true. And then at the the end of the show, I feel like like something almost cruel about ending the show this way. We're going to tell you about something you maybe don't know about, which is the problem with permafrost in Alaska, which as it thaws, is releasing a lot of carbon, which is creating a vicious cycle. All right, so, but we're going to begin with uh, the no more inspiring story of uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and his pardon. Um, This is the story of a man who, the more that you learn about him, the more you realize this man is a monster. He's just a complete monster. Um, And to have read and uh, listened to interviews over the weekend about um, the, the, the tent prison that he he himself referred to as a concentration camp, um, the way that inmates seem to die at rather high rates in his custody, the way that pregnant women seem to miscarry at um, high rates in his custody, uh, the blazing hot temperatures in which prisoners were held, not just in the tent city, but elsewhere. Uh, and also at times freezing cold temperatures. People don't think that the desert can get cold, but it does. Uh, and they weren't really afforded any shelter there either. Um, this is just, you know, a widespread human rights violation. However, that's not really exactly <laughs> what he got in trouble for. And anyway, he's out of the trouble anyway, which is why this is a little bit depressing. Let me tell you who's with us. Uh, Daniel Magos uh, lives in Phoenix. He was a plaintiff in the American Civil Liberty Union's class action lawsuit against former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He wrote an essay for The Washington Post on why Arpaio did not deserve the pardon that he appears to be getting. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern covers law and LGBTQ issues for Slate. uh, And he wrote about also about President Trump's pardon this week. And Slate has uh, some interesting thoughts about what case unrelated to uh, Arizona, this might actually be heavily a sign about or anyway. We'll, 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 we'll connect all that together for you. Um, but Don, Daniel Magos, let me just begin with you. Um, in a way, although I tried to sketch out some of the just the horrible human rights violations uh, over which Sheriff Joe Arpaio saw, 
Um, what he got in trouble with for ultimately was profiling and then contempt of court involving profiling. And, and you're part of that story, right? You were profiled. Uh, T- tell us that story. Correct. Um, I was stopped by one of his deputies in on December 4th of uh, 2009. Uh, there was no probable cause whatsoever for the stop. Uh, the officer was coming in opposite direction that I was going. And when I was stopped at a light waiting for the left turn signal, and when he went past the intersection, he slowed down to almost a rolling stop when he was parallel with our truck, and he started both, my wife and I, and then he accelerated, made a U-turn, turned his siren and light on. By this time, I had made my turn, and then he followed me. Uh, I pulled off to the side of the road, just slowing down to let him go through. I thought he was on an emergency call, and then I realized that he was after myself and my wife. So I pulled up the next street so it could be safe. And uh, he never got off his patrol car. He just stayed there for uh, between two and three minutes. Mm-hmm. And finally, my wife and I decided, you know, let's go and check, see why he doesn't get out of the car. Mm-hmm. So we stepped out of our truck. And as soon as we stepped out, he started yelling at us to get back in. And we got back in. And he remained in his car another minute or two. And then finally, when he was getting ready, he came over to the my window. But he was, uh, you know, yelling and screaming that he wanted my documents, my driver's license, my registration, my insurance. And he also demanded my wife's driver's license. And I told him, uh, she's not the driver, I am. And he got even more uh, furious and yelled at me and my wife, I want that license. So my wife handed me the purse and I gave him the license that he looked in my wife's purse. And then he asked me if I had any guns with me, any drugs, any bazookas. I said, no bazookas, no drugs. I said, I do possess a gun, which uh, I possess legally. I said, and then he asked me, hand over my gun so I handed it over and he told me to step out of the truck and I had already asked him why he stopped us and he just ignored me uh, he told me to put my hands on the side of the truck spread my legs out and move them back and then he proceeded to come over and kick my legs further back and further apart and he said he was going to search me and I said uh, why or what for and all this time, he's got his hand on his gun, and he said, uh, I'm going to search you for drugs and weapons. I said, I already turned my weapon to you, and I told you I don't have any drugs. You know, And I mean, I was 65 years old. I don't think it fits the profile of a uh, drug trafficker or a violent person. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he proceeded to search me. I told him he was doing it against my consent. He proceeded to search me, emptying my pockets, shirt, 
and in my pants pockets. And then, uh, you know, sticking the, you know, different items in my pockets, sticking them back in. And then he proceeded to pat me down all the way from the neck down, including, you know, all my le- my legs and then uh, the groin area. And that was quite humiliating because my wife was witnessing all this. And there was a, oh, a look of terror on her face. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to happen from from here? Right, and I know that by the, at the end of all this, too, the uh, officer, the deputy said, "Don't, don't you dare think this was racial profiling or something like that." And so, oh, let, let me, yeah, let me swing the conversation uh, over uh, to uh, Mark Joseph Stern. Um, so many things to talk about this, uh, talk about here, Mark Joseph Stern. But Mr. Magos's experience is not unique, and and it, it's part of a wide range of offenses that ultimately have cost the taxpayers of this area, what, somewhere around $150 million? Yeah, that's right. Nearly $150 million is the tab that Maricopa County uh, taxpayers had to pick up from Arpaio's various offenses. And the story we just heard is, uh, you know, devastating. But unfortunately, it's not very surprising because we know that for years, uh, this department had a, a pattern or practice of racial profiling of Latinos over and over again. Uh, the deputies uh, would pull over individuals who were Latino with absolutely no probable cause that is unconstitutional, really the quintessence of of an unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, But these deputies would do it, uh, also conduct these raids on immigrant communities, um, harass and target uh, individuals they perceived as Latino, uh, actually bring Latino individuals into jail on false charges and hold them there for hours, days, or even weeks uh, before letting them go, because of course they'd done nothing wrong. Uh, And this was just how Arpaio ran his department. And we know from the various inquiries and investigations, including one by the Department of Justice, um, that it came from the top, that Arpaio encouraged this kind of behavior, that these were not rogue agents, but this was how his office conducted itself on his orders. Uh, And so, you know, when you have the guy at the top in the leadership position uh, urging his deputies to uh, racially profile, to unreasonably search and seize individuals and drivers whom they perceive to be Latino, uh, you know, you are going to get these kinds of egregious abuses. Uh, And so it is, like I said, you know, the story we heard is emblematic of a much broader problem. It began on the streets and and in cars and in communities, uh, but it continued into jails where these individuals were often taken. uh, And and we can discuss uh, how the human rights abuses uh, continued after the initial arrest. Right. I mean, these, to me, uh, reading about those and hearing about those over the weekend uh, has been just, uh, I don't think I had kind of quite grasped the monstrosity uh, um, and the atrocity uh, of all of this. Um, and, and we could swing back to that, Mark. But I mean, I also wanted to spend a moment with both you and Mr. Magas talking a little bit about this pardon, because the pardon is an odd thing, right? There's there's an ordinary process, not that anything ordinary is ever done uh, these days, but uh, there's ordinarily a process. Uh, Arpaio would have submitted a pardon application through the office of the pardon attorney. There's all this stuff that basically happens before you get a pardon. None of it happened this time, right? 
Yeah, that's right. This was an extreme departure uh, from the norms that have been established over the last decades and really centuries. I mean, the pardon power has been used by presidents for a very long time in a very regular, uh, systematic way. Like you said, pardons are submitted. Uh, There are attorneys in the executive branch who are committed to reviewing these applications. They use guidelines created by the president and the president's office to determine who is a good applicant. Uh, You know, it usually happens after an individual individual has been sentenced and served time um, because the clemency power is often used to commute sentences as well. Uh, And none of that happened here. This was not uh, a president saying, I think this sentence is too harsh or I think this individual was uh, unjustly overcharged. This was just a president saying, I don't think it's fair that my friend might go to prison. And and that's why he intervened before Arpaio was even sentenced. I think it's important to note another really radical departure from the norm here. Arpaio had been convicted, but he hadn't been sentenced, and he probably wouldn't have even gone to prison uh, for contempt of court. He probably would have had some kind of suspended sentence. Yet Trump still decided to intervene before the justice system had finished its job. Before this case was closed, Trump waded in and let his friend off the hook. And that's pretty much uh, unparalleled in, in our modern history, unless you want to go back to the infamous Nixon pardon. All right. So, uh, Mr. Magos, I just have to ask, how did you feel? Um, What was your what were your emotions when you heard that President Trump had pardoned the sheriff? Yes, I was uh, infuriated. I am not an anger man. But uh, this time when I heard, uh, I was really furious that Trump, you know, intervened in the judicial system, stopped it, and that uh, nullified all my seven and a half years of effort going to court, you know, to all the sessions. Uh, My wife going to sessions up to uh, five months before her death in January 30th of 2016. And uh, all those efforts just went down the drain with... uh, pardon that was not in my in my view it's not even legal because he did it by stopping the judicial process and to me that's an obstruction of justice justice is not being concluded and uh, he stopped it before the conclusion and to me that's a gigantic offense to me, to my wife, uh, to my wife's memory, to all the Hispanic community here, and to the majority of the Anglo community who stand for the Constitution, for the American way of life. And I'm just hoping that our Senator McCain and Jeff, uh, they have been condemning his action you know, as far as the pardon, and I hope they take that into action and really start a process of impeachment, not only about this abuse, but all the abuses that he has perpetrated. Right. Uh, so let me just pause you there because it leads us back to something that, that Mark uh, has been writing about, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, who covers law for Slate magazine. So 
there's a way in which, obviously, this pardon is specific to the case itself, to whatever relationship exists between Arpaio and Trump, uh, to whatever the politics are of that relationship. But you've suggested that this also might be an early flexing of the the presidential power of pardon and a use of it in a way that short circuits uh, a legal process and, and, and that that flexing may be kind of a signal about how he would handle aspects of the Mueller investigation, correct? That's exactly right. This pardon sets a precedent and a very dangerous one at that um, because, you know, courts do not have a standing army or a police force that they can use uh, <clears throat> to implement their rulings. What they have is uh, the contempt of court power. They can hold individuals, public officials, uh, anybody really who doesn't comply with a court order uh, in contempt of court, civil or criminal. Uh, and criminal contempt of court is, is pretty much the strongest tool that courts have to uh, order individuals uh, to comply with the law. Trump has now shown pretty flagrant disrespect uh, for the contempt of court tool. He has waded into uh, this case uh, before a sentence was issued uh, to say, look, Arpaio is my associate. I don't think this is fair. I, I think this is a witch hunt. He was, as Trump said at his rally, uh, charged for doing his job. And so I'm just going to short circuit this and pardon him right now. That sets a precedent that I think could definitely rear its head again as the Mueller investigation continues uh, and as Trump's uh, other associates are ordered to, for instance, appear for a deposition uh, or answer a subpoena uh, or testify under oath or all of these things that uh, Trump's associates will likely be asked to do soon. Uh, well, what if they don't do it? What if they just say no? Pretty much the worst thing that could happen is that they're held in criminal contempt of court. And what happens then? Well, Trump has already pardoned one of his friends who was held in criminal contempt of court for failing to comply with a court order. The norm has been shattered and the precedent has been set. And, and I don't think it would be very difficult if, for example, Paul Manafort refused to turn over some documents compelled by the court. Uh, if, if he were then held in contempt, I, I don't think it would be a, a, a big stretch at all for Trump to just do what he did this weekend all over again and say, you know what, this is a witch hunt. This is ridiculous. He hasn't been charged with anything uh, or these charges are unjust. I'm going to let him off the hook now because I don't trust the justice system to do its job correctly. Right. So one of uh, President Trump's biggest problems, if in fact Russia is as big a problem as some of us think, is that as some of these people are questioned, even they may have some incentive to, as they say, roll over uh, on the president. If they know anything that could incriminate the president or anybody else for that matter, they're often offered incentives to do that. Those incentives don't work as well if in fact Paul Manafort or Mike Flynn or anybody else who might be questioned here knows or thinks he knows that President Trump would pardon him, probably pardon him kind of early in the process, too, as opposed to making him rack up big, huge legal fees. And and as you pointed out, too, an interesting part of this is so imagine that I'm Paul Manafort and that pretty early on in the process, I get a presidential pardon. Well, the uh, FBI, Robert Mueller, whoever, they would still have some interest in getting me to testify, uh, having me testify under oath. But if I knew I could get pardoned again for, for contempt of court, right, Mark, then I, and I, I, even, even the possibility that I could be compelled to testify begins to leak away. Yeah, that's right. It's it's almost like an endless cycle or a loophole even, um, because after you're pardoned, you, you lose a, a 
part of your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. You can't incriminate yourself. So you can theoretically be compelled to testify about things you might not otherwise be compelled to testify about. But what happens if you don't? Well, the worst thing again is that you get held in contempt of court again, and then Trump just pardons you again. Uh, and so like Trump sort of holds the ultimate power here unless uh, Congress chooses to move forward with, with something like uh, impeachment or try to hold him accountable in another way. Uh, you know, the pardon power is one of the most awesome and unqualified powers afforded to a president. Uh, we've probably never had a president who's willing to wield it in the way that Trump is clearly now wielding it. Uh, and so we're entering new dangerous territory. But you're, you're absolutely right uh, that this creates a big incentive, a sort of countervailing incentive for all of his associates to just kind of push away the investigation and to know that at the end of the day, if they decide not to comply, then the worst that can happen is, hey, they get charged with contempt and their old pal Trump lets them off the hook. Um, I want to go back to Mr. Magos for a second here. One of the things that must have been very um, dispiriting and, and must have made you angry or or depressed in the past is that knowing everything that they knew about Sheriff Joe Arpaio, the voters of Maricopa County kept reelecting him, right? They knew they knew about these tent prisons. They knew about the profiling. They knew about the raids the, uh, on Latino neighborhoods. They knew all this stuff. And and he kept getting reelected. I don't know. What do what do people in, in the Latino community say about that? Uh, you're asking me, correct? Yes, I'm asking you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, OK. Um, the reason that he was uh, elected several times, you know, several occasions, was that, unfortunately, the Hispanic community does not turn out to the polls in big numbers. And uh, the other communities like Sun City, Sun Lakes, Fountain Hills, those are affluent communities, mostly retirees from back east. Mm -hmm. And they do turn out to vote because they're not at work. And the Hispanic men or women or both are going out there to work to support their families. So this time, the Hispanic activists began to move in that direction of registering people and urging them to vote. And we voted in big numbers, and that made the difference this time. And I think uh, in the future elections, there will even be more impact on, uh, you know, the vote on the elections, uh, be it local, state, or national. Mm. Um, There's going to be a consequence now, and we're going to use the vote as one of our weapons. Um, you know, Mark Joseph Stern, one of the things that's hard for uh, me, anyway, as an outsider or somebody who doesn't live down there to understand, it seems as though there were so many bases on which federal law enforcement could move on Sheriff Arpaio. We've we sort of talked about this, just, you know, uh, obvious kind of boilerplate due process violations, civil rights violations, human rights violations. I mean, uh, in a way, the, the, the winds up, you know, for criminal with criminal contempt for violating a court order after years and years and years of all this other stuff. I mean, why why was the final charge kind of comparatively rinky dink? 
so the main reason I would say is that a lot of his uh, previous misconduct wound up getting settled uh, via civil suits uh, and injunctions and the sort of standard business of, of courts. There were not a lot of uh, criminal cases against Arpaio himself. Instead, you had uh, former inmates or, or victims of his uh, illegal policing uh, band together and bring either class actions uh, or individual lawsuits challenging this uh, conduct. And, and really, the main goal here was just to get him to stop. Uh, and so you have a, a flurry of court rulings uh, uh, blocking Arpaio and his department from, from continuing all of this egregious behavior. One example is uh, that he uh, would lock uh, individuals on antipsychotic medication in uh, boilingly hot solitary confinement cells so that their medication would react poorly uh, and they'd essentially go crazy. Um, and uh, civil rights groups stepped in and had the courts force him to stop that. Uh, another time he set up a live webcam pointed at uh, the women's toilets uh, in the women's holding cell of his jail. The courts made him stop that as well. Uh, and so there are all of these sort of, it was almost like whack-a-mole in the courts uh, until uh, in uh, the late aughts and the early teens, the Justice Department got involved. Uh, under Obama, the Justice Department got very heavily involved and built up this kind of ironclad case against him. And that was the investigation that led to all of these facts about racial profiling of Latino drivers, these illegal raids on the immigrant communities. This was this sort of huge stack of papers basically proving that he was doing all of this stuff illegally. Uh, and in order to not seem overly aggressive or to be intruding on state sovereignty, the, the DOJ uh, did not try to sort of, you know, go after him criminally. Uh, the DOJ instead just tried to get him to stop. Uh, and it was only after he did not stop that he was held in criminal contempt. So in, in one sense, you can look at this as uh, a real problem with our court system, that public officials like Arpaio and his deputies, who are charged with enforcing the law, do not face significant consequences when they violate the law. It can take years for these cases to build up. And even then, the county may end up footing the bill for some civil settlement. Um, and, and that was why the uh, verdict holding Arpaio in criminal contempt, in contempt was such a victory, because finally one of these officials was going to be held accountable in a real way. Uh, but unfortunately, that's out the window. And, and the precedent that was once set uh, holding Arpaio in contempt is now gone. All right. Uh, we're going to have to stop there. But thanks so much to you, Mark Joseph Stern, uh, who writes uh, about law and LGBTQ issues for Slate. Uh, Daniel Magos lives in Phoenix with a plaintiff in the ACLU class action lawsuit against Joe Arpaio. Well, we'll stop there. We're going to change. We're just going to move a little bit to the east. I have a bad sense of direction. We're going to go uh, from Phoenix to Houston after this. Didn't have the cure, but sure needed the money. What a strange, strange world we live in. Where the good are damned and the wicked forgiven. What a strange, strange world we live in. Those who don't have lose, those who got. All right. Uh, those of uh, us who follow the work of some of uh, America's finest reporters, uh, those working and some of those working are working down in the Southwest, were not 
entirely surprised uh, by everything we saw and heard this weekend, especially if you'd followed a project done by Nina Satija, who used to work with us now with the Texas Tribune, uh, and, and two other reporters, including Al Shaw of ProPublica. It was a series examining Houston's flood risk in 2016. And parts of, it was a multi-part series. Parts of it had titles like why Houston isn't ready for the next big hurricane. Uh, well, guess what? Here's the next big hurricane, uh, and Houston is not not ready. Houston's underwater. So joining us right now is Al Shaw, news applications developer and reporter at ProPublica, to talk a little bit about why this might be happening. Uh, Al Shaw, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, for starters, we should say this is a really big storm. And even if some of the things that were pointed out in your series had been remedied, they'd still be having a huge problem, right? This is just a big, huge rainstorm. Right. I mean, this is a this is quite an insane storm. This is a very, very rare storm. Um, I, and, you know, you could have the best planned city in the world and you'd probably, you know, be digging yourself out from something like this for a while. So uh, the storm we, we uh, talked about in our series was devastating too, but, you know, it's some things you can't plan for. Uh, this is a, a thing that even if, uh, you know, the best planned city in the world, you could not plan for. Right. And we sh- one of the things that I think a lot of people are being reminded about or learning about this weekend is that, that hurricanes uh, have essentially three major types of risk. One of them is the initial storm surge. Uh, the other, Another one is the wind, the incredibly destructive wind. And then the last is the rainfall. This is basically a storm that's about rainfall. Um, and, and rainfall is a for a city is sort of a rate problem, right? Can you get rid of the rain uh, in a way that keeps pace with the rate at which it falls? And, right, exactly. Go ahead. Right, exactly. We saw this uh, a few weeks ago in New Orleans, you know, and they, there was a bunch of rain. I think they got something like nine inches in about three hours, and they have a pumping system in New Orleans. And that system's only designed to get rid of, you know, an inch the first hour, then half an inch after that. Even, you know, we, we found that the pumps, or we saw that the pumps were not all up to speed, but even if they were all up to speed, you just could not get that amount of rain out of the city uh, fast enough. Now, now Houston is, has a much different beast. It's a lot bigger than New Orleans, and uh, notoriously, uh, it's pretty notorious for flooding. So, you know, even in uh, storms that are a lot uh, less severe than Harvey, they still have trouble getting the water out. So, um, you know, yes, Harvey is an unprecedented disaster, um, but we're seeing the kinds of flooding, uh, you know, not quite as bad as Harvey, but pretty bad every year now. There was a pretty bad one in 2016, and there's a pretty bad one in 2015. Between those two storms, something like 19,000 homes were flooded. So this is something that Houston has been dealing with, um, you know, starting from way before uh, yesterday. Right. If you live, live up here in Connecticut, you probably don't remember or know about Tax Day 2016 or right, Memorial exactly. Day 2015. Those are the storms that I was talking about. Uh, they weren't famous, but they were incredibly damaging down there. Now, a lot of this is because of development. Houston's the fourth largest city in, in America. It's growing each year at like 100,000, 125,000 people. That means building. And when you build, as I learned from your series, basically what you're doing often is replacing porous ground, something like, say, prairie land, which can absorb a certain amount of water with an impermeable surface like concrete or asphalt. Go ahead, take it from there. Right. So Houston, the Houston area used to all be coastal prairie before we put a city there. And that means, you know, you've got dense clay with with prairie grasses growing in it. And some of those grasses can get to be about 14 feet deep. And those grasses are really, really good at absorbing water. So this is an area that was designed, you know, by nature to flood. 
And so what we did was we start putting concrete down there, and we made pretty really bad decisions before the 1980s, and we're, we're making just merely bad decisions now. So before the 1980s, you weren't required to add what's called a detention pond, which is an attempt to kind of offset the amount of water being run off by detaining it in a pond. You weren't required to do that. Um, so a lot, of this, a lot of the neighborhoods we're seeing flooding in our neighborhoods that were built uh, before the 1980s, but we're also seeing a lot of flooding in, in more recent neighborhoods, recently built neighborhoods such as along Cypress Creek in the northwest part of the city. So that's a neighborhood that was heavily developed after uh, Tropical Storm Allison hit in 2001. Um, so the northwest side of the city ex extremely f uh, flood prone and building like crazy. They built a new freeway to connect that part of the city just a couple years ago. This has all kinds of interesting um, unintended consequences, um, and, and as you guys write about in your series. First of all, one thing that happens is that other neighborhoods that never flooded before, people who've been living in their houses for 30 years without any real flooding, suddenly found their properties flooded. They don't, didn't think they lived in a floodplain. But, I mean, even if you're a homeowner anywhere, one thing you know is if anybody around you builds, like, a patio or something, uh -huh. it, it, the drainage changes, Right. 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 I mean, it's a completely dynamic system. So there are two uh, massive reservoirs on the west side of the city. They're called Attics and Barker. They were designed in the 1940s to, pr to protect downtown Houston and the Houston Ship Channel, which is one of the biggest ports in the country. Um, but since then, uh, and back then, that area around where those reservoirs were was, was completely empty. There was some farmland, mostly a coastal prairie down there. But there was not really much around it. But since then, development has spread out, and now it's kind of hugging these reservoirs. So there's not a whole lot of wiggle room when those reservoirs fill up. There's also been development to the northwest of them uh, impacting that watershed. So a lot more runoff is coming into the reservoirs, and you're actually in a situation right now where they have to decide uh, whether to release water uh, into that river, which flows down to downtown Houston, and uh, it's, it looks like just this morning they decided to do that, which is going to raise that water level uh, even higher and flood some more houses probably um, between downtown Houston and the reservoirs. So it's a very dynamic system. Um, some of these areas that have built in the last you know, five to ten years are really having an impact on other parts of the city um, that you know, they probably didn't intend to, but it's because it's that system that happens. Right. So... One thing that you guys found as you were looking at this process was that developers were winning most of the arguments, right? In other words, they would come in and say, no, we can build here and it won't create a new flooding risk. It won't substantially increase it. We can do certain kinds of abatements or design stuff that will really help. Scientists are saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, first of all, rainfall is going to change as a result of climate change. Um, and there's a cumulative effect here to all of this development. Your development isn't happening in a vacuum. It's it's tied into all the other developments, developments around it. But it seemed as though local zoning officials and other decision makers about stuff like this just weren't listening to the cautionary side of this argument. Right. So when you talk to, we talked to the now the former uh, head of the Harris Flood Control District, and he uh, disputed the fact that, uh, that increased development increases flooding. And he says that, you know, because you have to build these detention ponds, you're actually offsetting, uh, offsetting that risk. But uh, Research done by his own department has shown that, it, that it's not equivalent to maintaining green space and, ma and maintaining prairie, and that uh, runoff, you still have runoff even when you do build the uh, detention ponds. So uh, the scientists we've talked to have said that you know, the approach that the flood control district is taking and the local of officials are taking isn't enough to offset the flood risk to the city. 
Um, as if to pour gasoline onto this fire for those people who remember, who can remember back a whole like 10 days ago or whatever this was uh, to the Donald Trump press conference. It was the one in front of Trump Tower where Elaine Chow was standing uh, next to him and he wound up talking a lot more about Charlottesville and maybe a little bit less about the infrastructure proposal that he had in front of him. But if you take a look at what he was talking about, one of the things that he seemed to be talking about would, was getting rid of Obama administration era flood control uh, provisions. In other words, the, any attempt to build in better thinking about and more cautionary think about thinking about potential floods uh, seems to be rolled back by the Trump administration. Right. I mean, that's like the number one thing we should not be doing. When you talk to any expert about this, this, this they say the first thing you can do to reduce flood risk is, is start buyouts in flood zones and start trying to get people out of those out of those flood zones. Um, so uh, you can look at you can start with the hundred year flood, flood zone, which is uh, what FEMA defines as a one in a hundred chance of flooding in any given year. We found that in the last two years in uh, in Houston, there's been a lot of flooding outside the hundred year flood zone, and we've we've talked to researchers who who have looked at parts of Houston who have said that as men, as many as over half of the amount of uh, flood claims have come from outside of the hundred year zone. So that's just really a start. I mean, we have to be looking at flood risk much. Uh, much more smartly and kind of reevaluating the risk because, you know, as you said, as you uh, pave over more, you're changing that system and you have to restudy it and look at where the risks are now. Uh, one thing that I've been reading about, uh, I don't know, this doesn't necessarily fall within the purview of your reporting, but uh, as I've been reading about it, apparently one of the things that they did that was at least sort of smart or could have been smart if it was done more comprehensively is as they redid roads in the Houston area, they put storm sewer drainage underneath the roads. The problem with that, though, if you don't do it enough or comprehensively enough, uh, you're basically turning your road into a water collection system. And when that pipe fills up, then the water comes up onto the road. I, I understand it's one of the reasons they were reluctant to carry out a, an evacuation order too close to the rainfall, because when people get stuck on the roads, those fill with water very early. Right. You turn the roads into a channel. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's been a couple, um, a couple different efforts. After uh, Tropical Storm Allison, there was a massive effort to restudy flood risks and restudy uh, where these zones are and, um, and kind of inspect the, the problems with drainage. And there's been, pro- there's been programs to widen the bayous. If you talk to the flood control chief, he, his, uh, his first choice would be to spend $25 billion to widen all the bayous. Now, that'll only get you so far. That probably won't get you very far in a Harvey-type situation. Um, so you have to kind of look at a holistic uh, approach, you know, maintaining green space, looking at getting people out of those 100-year zones. Yes, probably widening the bayous, looking for other infrastructural st- uh, solutions. But the, the fact is you can't really engineer your way out of something like this. Like this is a city that probably shouldn't have been built in, a, in this place. Uh, and now the city exists and there's probably, you know, there's ways we can work around it. But uh, you can't think with a, uh, just in concrete. Can't think in just what we can we what can we engineer and build to get our, ourselves out of this. Right. There's one last point I want to uh, make, uh, Al, or, or get you to make, which is, and, and you've already made it partly, which is that people don't understand what that 100-year term or 500-year term in the case of Harvey mean. They, they think it means a storm that's only supposed to happen once every 100 years. It's a little bit more like casino odds, right? Basically, everybody's betting. The people who are making these decisions are betting that there's a 1 in 100 chance that this storm is going to happen in any given year or a 1 in 500 right. chance that this storm is going to happen in any year. Or as you point out that in some areas that storms like this just don't happen, that there's something like a zero chance. 
chance of that kind of effect. And, and the problem is it's like a casino where somebody else is paying out every time the casino loses. The casino has the odds all wrong. But, the, but since the casino doesn't pay, it's somebody else. It's the taxpayers. It's the people who suffer from these floods. You have an odds system that's rigged all wrong, and the people who are setting the odds don't actually pay the bill for it. Right. Well, uh, yeah, and even uh, President Trump just tweeted a couple days ago, I think, um, it sounds like there's a one in 500 year, or sorry, it seems like there's a 500, uh, 500 year storm has come to, to Houston. Well, no, you're right. That's it's actually a one in 500. It's not the 500 year storm. We're not going to see one of these every 500 years. Um, and you're right. It's it's a casino odds, and you can you can uh, you can roll. Uh, you know, you can get heads every time. If you know that happens sometimes. Um, when you talk to experts about this, they say that this idea that FEMA has, where you've got a, a bright line and there's risky on one side and not risky on the other side, is actually the wrong way to think about this. And the better way to think about it is as a risk gradient. You know, a, a, a smooth ramp from risk from most risky to least risky. And that's what I think uh, they're trying to pivot to, but they've been very slow about it. Um, and that's what they do in some other countries: is kind of present this risk gradient rather than you know, oh, you're on the other side of that line, so you know, you're safe. I mean, that's not how nature works. Right. Yeah, that's pretty obvious today. I hope it's obvious to people six months from now that we right. remember these lessons. Al Shaw, news applications developer and reporter for ProPublica. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to take a quick break now when we come back. I wish we had like a really happy thing to end with. But in fact, it's, it's going to be, if anything, maybe even a little bit scarier. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Noah. On tomorrow's show, we take a look at the evolution of superhero costumes. And now, back to Colin. Right, and uh, I also want to remind you one more time, on Wednesday night, Circle Wednesday night, think about coming out 7.30, we're going to do, um, we're going to tape a show, uh, but we'll do more than we'll wind up on, on the show, about the connection between music and spirituality and how creators of music often come out of different spiritual traditions. We're going to have some tremendous musicians there. I think there'll be some opportunities for you to make some music, too. Um, so it's at the uh, Copper Beach Institute in West Hartford. Uh, please join us. It's free. We'd just like to have you there. All right. Uh, now we're talking to uh, Dr. Max Holmes, uh, Deputy Director, Senior Scientist, Woods Hole Research Center. Uh, we're talking, we were talking in the previous segment about how climate change sort of changes the odds uh, in a place like Houston. We're going to talk more about climate change and how those odds may multiply incrementally because of something not too many people know about, which is the permafrost uh, in Alaska. You probably won't be surprised to find out that it's thawing, but you might be surprised to find out what's there when it thaws. So, Dr. Max Holmes, welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. It's great to be here. So, as this um, permafrost thaws... Uh, it reveals basically carbon, right? That's what gets kind of uh, exposed. 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, essentially what permafrost is, is frozen ground. And as the name suggests, it's ground that's been frozen for a long time. Technically, it's ground that's been frozen for two or more years in a row, but in in most cases, it's been frozen for hundreds and thousands and even tens of thousands of years. But what's happening now as the Earth is warming uh, and the Arctic's warming even more rapidly, the permafrost is starting to thaw. And so all that stuff that's contained in those soils and in that frozen ground is, is thawing along with it. And one of those things is lots of remains of plants and animals that lived long, long ago that contain lots of carbon. And as that permafrost thaws and that carbon thaws, um, bacteria, microbes can do their thing. They use that carbon as an energy source. And sort of in the process, they, they uh, release carbon dioxide and methane, which are greenhouse gases, which can cause more warming. Right. So you've got sort of a vicious cycle. Carbon in, in the atmosphere creates warming. Warming thaws the permafrost uh, at an unprecedented rate. Uh, the thawing of the permafrost exposes and then causes the release of more carbon into the atmosphere. I mean, th- this seems like a kind of dangerously spiraling math that you're talking about here. Yeah, that's right. And that's certainly what we worry about. And I should say that right now that carbon in the Arctic is roughly in balance. That is the amount of carbon that goes into the soils and into the permafrost as plants die is roughly in balance with the amount that has that, that leaves the soil. Over the last, let's say, many thousands of years, the soil, the Arctic has slowly accumulated carbon. So when plants die, they don't fully decompose, they don't fully rot. So the carbon builds up. Now it's roughly in balance. And yeah, exactly. What we worry about is that that balance is tipping and that soon the Arctic, not just Alaska, but the whole Arctic, uh, will be a carbon source to the atmosphere. Now, your teams of researchers up there looking at this, one of the other questions they have is about wildfires and how wildfires affect the permafrost. I mean, it's intuitive, sort of how they affect the permafrost. But um, first of all, are wildfires happening more in this area right now? Yeah, it seems that throughout the Arctic, fire is increasing, and that's sort of intuitive as well. As the Arctic warms, it dries out. Uh, lightning strikes or human activities can, can start fires, and, and they burn more rapidly. So um, where I spent much of July with a big group of people, including a bunch of undergraduate students from around the country, um, in a project we call the Polaris Project, it was in the Yukon River Delta in Alaska. So it's where the Yukon River dumps into the Bering Sea, this vast um, floodplain delta. And um, in 2015, the summer of 2015, there are huge wildfires that were started by lightning. uh, And it appears that more area burned in 2015 in the Yukon River delta than in the past 65 years combined. Now, when, uh, when, when tundra burns, when um, you get an immediate release of carbon from the burning vegetation, but perhaps more significantly is what happens over the longer term. So you have this vast amount of carbon locked up in the permafrost, and the fire does things that can impact its long-term fate. So one thing it does, it burns off the surface insulating layer. So there's vegetation kind of on the surface, and which acts as a really good insulator. When that burns away, the sunlight that hits the surface of the uh, of the ground in the summer heats up the soil more rapidly causing more rapid thaw and the other thing fire does is it changes the color of the surface to uh, this black charred surface which absorbs more of the incoming sunlight again causing 
more warming. So we're trying to tease apart these factors to figure out um, sort of the overall impact of fire on the status of the permafrost in the Arctic. Um, Max, I assume there's um, there's not too much that we can do uh, other than stop emitting so much carbon, right? There's no magic bullet uh, up there for the permafrost. No, there's not really a magic bullet. But what we hope is that by kind of getting this story out there, this is going to give individuals and governments uh, additional incentive to do what we can do, and that is wean ourselves off of, off of fossil fuels and stop chopping down trees. Trees are really good uh, carbon uh, storage device. They both they pull the carbon out of the atmosphere. They hold on to it a long time. For a long time, there's still lots of deforestation going on in the tropics. That can be slowed to combat climate change. We can regrow trees in places they have been chopped down. And yeah, number one is get off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And, and, you know, I mean, not to draw a bright line stretching from Alaska to Houston, because there isn't really one exactly there, but, but you're seeing in some ways uh, as sea levels rise, as coastal cities uh, all over uh, the U.S. Uh, are affected by this, I mean, they're going to be affected even more. We're going to be having more disasters, I assume, one way or another as these sea levels rise. Yeah, that's right. Sea level rise is a big part of it. So are warming ocean temperatures, which are directly related to climate change, obviously, as uh, ocean temperatures rise, storms like hurricanes become more intense. So, yeah, there is a connection, most certainly. The kinds of events that have happened on the Texas coast recently um, would be expected to increase moving forward as the Earth continues to warm. All right. Well, on that cheery note, we're going to say uh, goodbye to Dr. Max Holmes uh, and thank him very much for the work that he's doing up there in Alaska. Even if even if the news isn't good, the news needs to be learned. He's deputy director, senior scientist for the Woods Hole Research Center. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, who's normally a much more cheerful uh, person than she has been today, uh, is the person <laughs> who produced this show. But this stuff is all, you know. I wish we had a happy story to tell. It's all stuff that we really do have to look at, though. We will we'll be switching to superheroes tomorrow. Maybe superheroes can save us. Uh, and then come out and, and play with us on Wednesday night. I think you'll have a, a really good time. See, we're not we're not always that scary. Do you really love me? I just want